Welcome to Trinity Western's Chapel Podcast, a space to listen to and respond to God's invitation to worship and mission. Every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 11 a.m., all members of the Trinity community are invited to join us for a moment of worship and a short word from our university chaplain and director of student ministries, Reverend Dr. James Ellis III. Throughout the semester, you'll also have opportunities to hear from special guests in our local community and abroad. As a vibrant part of campus life, our chapel gathering at Trinity Western creates opportunities for us to hear and be changed by God's story in Jesus through music, teaching, prayer, scripture reading, and storytelling. We're glad you're listening in today. We hope that you encounter God's heart for you and the world. This is the word of God from Job chapter 3, verses 20 through 26. Why is light given to those in misery, and life to the bitter of soul, to those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than for hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave? Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sighing has become my daily food, my groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me, what I dreaded has happened to me. Verse 26, I have no peace, no quietness, I have no rest, but only turmoil. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. In the instant cult classic 1995 film Friday, starring Chris Tucker and Ice Cube, just like Debo did Stanley and Craig finally did Debo, life has a way of knocking us out from time to time. The blows come in stealthy combinations, stiff jabs and artful hooks. And a wall full of academic degrees immaculate morality, if such a thing exists, an awesome credit score, some money in the bank, and a good reputation are not enough to keep it at bay. Life has a way of knocking you out. Now, I know that you all out there at Trinity are young, as once was I, in the prime of life, possibly flirting with a mood of instructability, and therefore, you're susceptible to risky behavior. So, if you label me a bitter and jaded old so-and-so, all I can tell you is what saints of old with silver-lined wisdom on top of their head and grace stuffed in their back pockets and sobering years of experience under their hood would tell you, just keep living. I wasn't particularly close to my maternal grandmother. I recall her as a pretty gruff, 
and mean lady, if I'm honest, more or less somehow dissatisfied to have me as her grandchild. But while in the hospital room, I heard her flatline with that unmistakable steady tone that we all know signifies that life has gone absent without leave. And when that happened, my chunky childhood self straight away started crying like a river, practically inconsolable until my older cousin, who I completely idolized, offered consolation. Earlier in life, some of my friends were murdered and more recently, older friends of mine, some of the coolest Christians you ever would have met, I'm talking octogenarians, have also, in defiance to Dylan Thomas's advice, gone gentle into that good night. While serving as a pastor in Washington, D.C., in the northeastern community of Deanwood, I had the pleasure of getting to know Derek and Una Kim. They were members of the church when I arrived, but a little more than one year later, after a powerful yet majestic thunderstorm in the early morning hours, from the other side of town, Derek texted me that Una was gone, absent from the body, present with the Lord. The year was 2015, the day June 14th, my birthday. At 49 years of age, a courageously grueling 16 months battling stomach cancer forced Una to leave Derek behind, to leave her sons, Matthew and Ethan, and a village of people who knew and loved her, who knew her to be a meek, though fiery, and devoted disciple of Jesus. As the sun was rising, my wife and I made our way over to the house to be with the family. It was a, a beautiful moment, one filled with tears more than anything else, but also filled with an appreciation of a life well lived. I share this only to illustrate that, that none of it is how life is supposed to be. None of it is how we imagine life will ever be. When you marry you hope to reach senior citizen status together, to delight in AARP and fast food discounts in abundance. If children come along, you may contemplate that they will someday bury you, but, but you don't contemplate that you will one day perhaps bury them. And if life has been insanely prosperous and remarkably uneventful, with everything you touch turning to gold, then, then when the reality delivers a powerful right hook to your jaw, this thing called life, you will collapse. In one way or another, at one time or another, you will find yourself knocked out in life, struggling to regain consciousness. And this is where we find Job. His buddies from chapter two, remember them, Eli, Billy, and Zoe, they have rushed to his aid. They are weeping and mourning together for uh, even uh, seven days and seven nights. They're sitting in cohesive quiet. No one, the text says, said a word to him, speaking of Job, because they saw how great his suffering was. 
And then out of the blue, Job speaks. Well, to be accurate, Job kind of emotionally vomits as if after so much replaying the tragedies that had been pressed into his psyche, that of childlessness and pennilessness and disease, Job just needed to shout to the heavens. He needed to shout to his friends. He needed to shout to whomever would listen about the bewildering misery of it all. To him, it's as if the entire created order has come unglued. Think about these words from the book of Ecclesiastes. Meaningless. Meaningless. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Why do people, uh, what do people gain rather from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? These are statements of confusion and disappointment. These are statements of lament. As far as he can comprehend, Job is betwixt and between a rock and a hard place, not knowing where to go or, or what to do next. In one of his 50 or so books that he uh, penned during his 53 years of life, uh, this Trappist monk and scholar by the name of Thomas Merton wrote this. Like Jonah himself, I find myself traveling toward my destiny in the belly of a paradox, Merton wrote. And this is how it goes now and again every so often in life when life happens. Up is now down. Down has disappeared. Left is fed up with right, and right is now in love with wrong. It's, it's foolishness. It's, it's vexation beyond belief. And if you live long enough, you too will find yourself dazed and confused. You will find yourself feeling that liberation or recompense, should they ever arrive, will always be a day late and a dollar short. Throughout Job 3, we, we hear this raw opening deluge of Job's heart. But you got to remember that, <clears throat> that this is poetry. So, so you must press uh, the prose through a rhetorician's filter. Job's statements are serious. He means what he says, just not literally in every instance. Now, I'm, I'm no clinician, but I think the brother sounds depressed. And if he is, we should not be surprised. For a while, you read the text, he gets on a kick about darkness. Verse 4, that day may it turn to darkness. Verse 6, that night may thick darkness seize it. Verse 9, may its morning star become dark. It seems that this is utilized to contrast the stark difference between uh, what God created. Um, if you think back to Genesis 1 saying, that let there be light, all these things that God created, and then separating the light from the darkness, that compared with the dark days that Job feels stuck in, in the middle of quicksand for the soul, of which he sees no remedy, he sees no escape and no redemption. How do you even envision rebounding from losing everything except your very life? When even that feels two steps away from life support, since your body is populated with nasty gremlin-type boils when they get wet. It would be inaccurate and unfair to 
surmise that Job is suicidal here. Again, you got to remember, although not in iambic pentameter or haiku or with the flair of a spoken word artist, perhaps, Job is still employing poetic language. He is verbally processing both eternity and whoever is near oozes trash heap to hear. If this manner of trouble is going to be unleashed upon someone, then why did God allow them to be conceived at all? These are questions that Job is probing. It's his pain talking. You, you got to understand, it's his pain talking. He's like, what is the point of me having made it this far in life? He's got big money. He's got big family. He's got much success, righteous living, only to lose it all in one fell swoop presumably through no glaringly apparent fault of his own. Beginning in verse 23, Job asks, Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sighing has become my daily good. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. No doubt at this point he is sweaty, filthy. His body is held hostage by a bevy of lesions. He's littered with ashes. Job feels unfairly targeted and defenseless with no conceivable way forward. Clarity, respite, justice, he longs for them all. Part of what undergirds this moment is something that I think today in 2020 we can clearly identify, identify with, and it's this, this notion that, quote, most, if not all of us, have a contractual agreement with God. The fact that he hasn't signed it doesn't keep us from believing it, as one author put it. What I need you to know this morning is that faith is not circumstantial. Faith is not circumstantial. God isn't alive and well, loving and caring with a controlling stake in your life only when its outcomes are to your liking. The Lord is not, by default, more pleased with you simply because you receive a promotion at work. The only constant in this earthen existence is God, who is the same yesterday and today and forever. That's it. When life feels lavish and abundant, its wheels being oiled with ease, God is good. When life goes off the rails, disappointing our every plan, putting the sword to every dream, that same God is still good. One looming problem with Christian circles, I contend, is the tendency to spiritualize every single solitary thing. Now, of course, in all things, God works for the good uh, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Amen. I believe that. But, but no one knows exactly how every situation reflects God's glory and our ultimate good. So we should do something very radical and stop 
trying to make these theological arguments in gymnastics acting like we do know. Job's 10 children are dead. Let's, let's not forget that. They are dead. There's no coming back. He has the autopsies and the coroner's report to prove it. His wealth, Job's wealth, has dissipated in a matter of moments. His empty bank account tells him so. His body has betrayed him with a plague-like outbreak that now covers every inch. Anyone who passes by can see it clearly. None of this was a figment of Job's imagination, nor was it something that he could or we can adequately mediate or explain away. Despite this, however, we can trust that God is good and that God uses every morsel of life for heavenly purposes in ways that mere mortals are not privy to see. The Bible does not advocate that we suppress our feelings, especially during times of trouble like this when our world has turned upside down. It just advocates, it just demands, it just invites us to make sure that we, we make the bold choice to live by faith and not by sight. But pay attention. This is, this is never about downplaying or escaping reality. In fact, it's the opposite. We, we face life's many paradoxical moments, teary-eyed and fatigued, broken and bruised, upset, but we lean into whatever hardship is before us as people of hope, as people of the good book. We cling to the hand of God as a, a toddler would cling to the hand of an adult when crossing the street. The road ahead is scary. Yes, of course it is. The traffic is loud, but the adult leads the way, right? That's how it goes. You, you hold the hand of the toddler and you lead them, you guide them, you protect them, you provide for them, you console them. Well, God the Father does the exact same thing with us and so much more. He is our refuge. Regrettably, when life gives us lemons, oftentimes we then take to convicting God of crimes against humanity. Mind you, based on our naturally restricted and ill-informed criteria. But again, let's be clear, God does not need your pardon. You, however, need his. One lesson from Job that I hope you'll put to use in this semester is to be honest about the severity of life. Sometimes it just isn't, uh, it, it just isn't inconvenient. It's, it's, it's just, it's laborious. Life is, is complex. It doesn't make sense. Sometimes without, without qualification, life sucks. I don't know if y'all hear that in church, anybody say that, but it's just an honest statement. Sometimes life is not pretty, it's not, it's not fun, it's, it sucks. And we'll never get where the Lord has in mind to send us if we're always trying to dodge or soften that truth. Yes, life, life can be absolutely horrible, and yet every moment... Every moment that we spend inhaling oxygen 
granted to us by God, no matter the environment's details, is a sacred opening to practice gratitude. Thanksgiving for having been sustained since we, mere mortals, cannot sustain ourselves. No contest. No Olympics, no fantasy sports league exists by which she or he who has endured the most suffering wins a prize. That's, that's just not how it works. The list is way too long and, and our time too short for me to comment more fully about times in my own life when I felt terrorized and alone, when I, when I felt like life lacked purpose and there was no exoneration that was hence coming. But I can tell you that God is faithful and that God is an ever-present help. Derek, uh, who I spoke of earlier, a relatively young believer, actually, when uh, his wife, Una, died five years ago, he has blossomed into an earnest Christian, someone who is committed to the name of Jesus Christ, to the person of Jesus Christ, to tangibly advocating for those that society banishes to a socioeconomic wasteland. Derek, he, he, is, he is one of the most sincere, one of the most caring, one of the most generous people that I know. Matthew just began high school uh, online, as it were, and, and Ethan, Una's other son, has become a chef. So, so they continue on with their lives, even though they still carry pain. And Christians must excel at telling the truth about life. So, so I'll just tell the truth as I end with, with these three statements. Number one, suffering is not sexy, nor is it desirable. It is suffering. No one wants it, but no one can avoid its every iteration. That's number one. Number two, what or who we lose in this life renders aspects of life forever changed. There's no avoiding this, even as we hope for and work toward brighter days. That's number two. And number three, this is all abundantly true. Number one and number two, all abundantly true. And still, God is good. May the Lord our God be your anchor in joy and in pain with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope to worship with you at our next broadcast online at livechapel.twu.ca. You can also stay connected with Chapel and Student Ministries by following us on Instagram at TWU Chapel and at TWU Student Men. Much love.